The book of Acts, uh, again, I love the title. The word Acts is the word praxis in Greek, uh, the, word, the word where we get our English word practical or practice. So even the title of the book of Acts, as we normally call it, the book of Acts is just how we say it. it the word practice, praxis, it means deeds. It's the process by which a theory or a lesson or a skill is enacted, embodied, or realized. So in other words, the, the truths, the things that we learn about are not just meant to be head knowledge. They're meant to be taken past knowledge. And oh, now we know, we've heard the good news, the gospels. Now what do we do with it? We actually live by it. We take it out and we practice those things. Jesus had said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations, you know, making disciples of, of all nations and, and so on. And now the book of Acts, being the sequel to the gospels, is now the carrying out of that command. It's that the theory of, hey, someday Jesus is saying you're going to go out and make disciples. And now we actually see it in the book of Acts happening. And that's how our lives are meant to be lived. The things we learn here when you come in here, um, this is not a retirement home for saints, as you well know. Uh, this is a place where you're trained to go and fish. You, come, you get equipped. and you go. Our job, my job as a pastor, is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That means the pastor doesn't do all the work of the ministry. That means you do the work of the ministry. That includes going and sharing and preaching and making disciples and all of that. So this is uh, the good news part two, I guess you could say. It's 28 chapters, but uh, it doesn't, chapter 28 really doesn't have a, an ending, so to speak. It's sort of open-ended with the Apostle Paul in prison, and it's like, oh, that's the end. It, it doesn't say, you know, and they lived happily ever after, uh, nothing like that. And so we recognize that the openness at the end of the book really leaves room to say that the book of Acts is still happening, even today. Matter of fact, there's a church group called the Acts 29 Church Movement, and the, the play on words there is that there is no Acts chapter 29. The idea is that the 29th chapter of Acts is the one that's still going on. It's our lives being written out. So uh, it's the book of Acts. Uh, so I like that. It's an action word. It's a, it's a about doing. And there comes time where we just, we, we take what we've learned and we do it. One more interesting note about that, the word praxis in Greek, in Greek literature, is used to describe the heroic acts of Hercules, Greek mythology. So when they want to describe the things he did, they use the word praxis. And I think when we read the book of Acts, interesting, it's called the Acts of the Apostles, which is what makes it interesting is that as we read it, you'll see that there's really only two apostles that are highlighted through the whole book. We have Peter and his ministry highlighted from chapter 1 on through chapter 10 or so. And then we have Paul also highlighted from the time he's saved uh, on the Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9, on to the end of the book. We see his missionary journey. So uh, it's really only about two apostles, but it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Um, but it's also sometimes called the acts of Jesus Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach. So some say, well, no, the Acts of the, acts of the Apostles is a bad name. We should call it the Acts of Jesus. Because the writer, who I'll talk about in a minute, uh, says that the first thing he wrote was about what Jesus began both to do and to teach, but then the book of Acts is about the continuation 
of that. So maybe it'd be better called the Acts of Jesus. And I think you could be okay with that. But then wait a second. The, the word Holy Spirit, the two words Holy Spirit, are used in this book of Acts 70 plus times. And really, we'll see the emphasis, and that's why it's called discovering the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, because the Holy Spirit and the ministry, the power of the Holy Spirit behind the work of the apostles to do, to continue on what Jesus started, really all sum up the whole thing. So is it the Acts of the Apostles? Is it the Acts of Jesus? Is it the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Yes. Absolutely. It's all three of those. And that's the thing about our lives. It's all three of those. Are we doing the work? Yes, but not in our own power. If you get anything out of the book of Acts, what I want you to get out of it is that we do not do ministry in our own power. We cannot do it. We cannot love people like Christ wants them to be loved. We cannot say what Christ wants us to say. We cannot go where Christ wants us to go without the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's not about human effort, although God's effort does work through human beings. Uh, One other little note before we get into uh, any further. Uh, The word witness is in this book 30 plus times. I read one scholar that said 39 times the word witness is in here. We get the word, the, the Greek word is martus for witness, which is where we get our word martyr. And we're going to see the first martyrs of the church in the book of Acts. We're going to see Stephen's martyrdom and some others as well. So uh, we see, we'll, we'll talk more about that. That's a predominant theme. If you could summarize the book or put, find a, uh, an outline statement, look down at verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That is the, the core statement of the whole book of Acts. So I would underline it or highlight it or whatever you'd like to do. Not only that, it gives us the outline for the whole book of Acts. Acts 1 through 7 deal with being a witness in Jerusalem, the witness to Jesus in Jerusalem. Acts 8 through 11 deal with being a witness to Jesus in Judea and Samaria. And Acts 17 through 28 deal with being a witness to Jesus to the end of the earth. So that's if you like to outline, you like to have a a structure to put with the book that would work as a structure. So again, verse 1 begins with, uh, the former accounts I made, O Theophilus. Now stop right there. If you're looking for a name for a child, if you're anybody in here pregnant, have a, you don't hear, this is not a real common one. So people name their kids all kind of wacky stuff these days. I met a girl at the soup kitchen uh, just this last Friday. Her name was Charisma. I thought, wow, that's kind of a neat name. It's a very biblical kind of thing. But Theophilus, <laughs> this is my son. We just call him Theo for short, right? Theophilus means lover of God. Theo meaning God. Phileo, or where we get phylos from, it would mean love or that brotherly love. So Theophilus, uh, give us a clue as to who wrote this because nowhere in the letter or in the book does, does it say who wrote it. Now again, the book of Acts is not a letter like the epistles that we read later on in the New Testament. Those are personal letters written from somebody. Paul says, you know, Paul, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ to, you know, to the church in Galatia or whatever. But this is a history. This is a narrative. So it doesn't, the person didn't sign it. But the gospel of Luke, 
begins in a similar way in that it's written to a singular person, probably someone who commissioned this to be done, named, guess what? Theophilus. And, and the person, Luke wrote his gospel to Theophilus so that he would know that what he learned about Christ, that he could be certain about it. So Luke had put in, put in order uh, all this account. He had done eyewitness, uh, taken eyewitness testimonies and compiled these things so that Theophilus, who was a Christian, could be certain that what he'd heard and what he'd discovered and what he'd been told was true. And so it's quite likely that Luke was a doctor. We know he's a doctor from, from what the Bible tells us about him, but he was probably also a slave. It was not uncommon for slaves to be tradesmen and for families to actually own a slave who was a personal physician for that family. So Luke the doctor, probably the personal slave, personal physician of this man Theophilus, uh, Theophilus commissions him to account these things, to write them down, and he does just that. So uh, the, so when he says the former account, he's speaking of his gospel, the gospel of Luke. The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day in which he was taken up. So the gospel of Luke goes from you know, the beginning of Jesus's ministry all the way up to his ascension, which we, we read in Luke 24. After he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, and we saw, we read some of that, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many, notice, infallible proofs. Interesting. Now, Luke is a doctor. He is a man who likes to feel it, touch it, experiment on it. You know, he's, a, he's got a scientific mind. And so I, I looked up this word in Greek too, infallible proofs. Do you know what that means in Greek? It means infallible proofs. How about that? <laughs> infallible proofs. Decisive or convincing proof or evidence. So he says when Jesus Luke's the only one that tells us that he, he appeared for them, to them for 40 days. Look at the next part of that verse. Being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. So after Jesus rose from the dead, remember he appeared to Mary Magdalene, then he appear, appeared to the 11, and then he would kind of come and go. He appears to Thomas. He appears to the, uh, the 11 again. He appears at some point to 500 people at one time. Paul records that in 1 Corinthians. So for 40 days, he's kind of popping in and popping out, you know, in some other form. He appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in another form. They don't recognize him. But think about when he appears to to the disciples and and he says to them, notice, look at the the nail marks in my hand. And then Thomas missed the meeting. And so then he appears to Thomas. And he says, Thomas, go ahead, touch me. Handle me. More than just look at me, handle me. Put your, your hand in the wound in my side. So even in Jesus' resurrected body, he maintained the wounds that came at the crucifixion, which is hard to, to understand how all that works. But nonetheless, Luke says they're infallible. You can't argue with it. It's infallible, unarguable, definitive proof that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. This eyewitness proof who handled him. And he said, Luke says to Theophilus, no one could argue this, Theophilus. What you believe in, many people might be contrary to it. People might question it. But you cannot argue with the proof of Jesus' 
presentation of himself after his resurrection. Now, we've been, it's been 2,000 years. Now, the last of the Holocaust generation is dying off. The last that were prisoners in, in, during the Holocaust, that generation is dying off. People are already, some are already denying the, the reality that the Holocaust ever occurred. When the eyewitnesses die off, people then begin to question what really happened. And so know that about the generation you live, 2,000 years removed. At that time, no one questioned it. No one questioned whether or not rose, Jesus rose from the dead. He did. He says it's infallible. But we're 2,000 years removed. What about 100 years from now? What will people say about the, the, the Twin Towers, the airplanes? We were there, right? We were eyewitnesses. And we could say with, with, to other people, we were, I remember, you remember where you were. I was in a barn in, in near Charlottesville, and they came out with a TV, bring the TV out to the barn. You've got to see this. Well, you see what's happening. Everything stopped. And so the kids that didn't experience that, is that the next generations, they're going to rely on us to tell them what happened. But then after we all die out, Lord, assuming the Lord doesn't come back soon, uh, I would rather that. But we're going to have to, someone's going to have to record, and, and it's been recorded for us on video and stuff, but they didn't have that. So it's been recorded in word, and we go, well, I'm not sure you can trust it. Luke says you better trust it because the proof is unfallible. You can't argue it because he was seen by them, and he presented himself to them. So that's Luke's sort of introduction. It ties, it it summarizes what he had written first to Theophilus, and now verse 4 picks up up from the overlap into, um, into this continued narrative. Being assembled together with them, meaning the disciples. There's about a, a 120 by the time they're waiting in the upper room, but this is with his, his small group of disciples. He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You've heard the terminology. Maybe someone has asked you, have you ever been baptized with the Holy Spirit? I'm not really sure how to answer that. I don't really never heard of that before. And through the book of Acts, we'll answer some of those questions. Can a person be saved but not be baptized with the Holy Spirit? Is, are they synonymous? Is it is a, when a person is saved, are they automatically baptized with the Holy Spirit? It's just a word game or not. And I'll answer some of those things today or talk about them some of those, those things today. But hang with me as we go through Acts. We'll see um, that there is no uniform way that these things happen in a person's life. Nowadays, we don't have to wait for anything. At that time, the promise of the Holy Spirit, um, Luke says it in, in Luke 24, that Jesus said to tarry in Jerusalem and you'll, re- in, and you'll receive um, power. You'll be endued with power from on high. It's a synonymous kind of thing. But he tells them uh, to wait for this promise. So they'd been, at, they'd been under Jesus' teaching I'm just trying to give you the, the, the run-up to this. They'd walked with him for three and a half years. He tells them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. But he says, wait. Don't go yet. Now, you would think they had everything they needed. They knew the story. They knew the teachings. They knew the truth. They'd seen the risen Lord. He'd presented himself to them. You'd think, why wait, right? I mean, isn't that what you're at? I mean, like, let's go. See, for me... And, and maybe for some of you, we're like, we're impulsive. You know, like, you tell me to go, I'm gone. Ten minutes ago, I'm at the door. Because I know we all, the church gets nailed sometimes for, well, you guys are lazy, no one's going to fulfill the gospel, and I'm not here to beat you up. Uh, 
But you can have the opposite problem too. You know, sometimes you can go too quickly. And, and I like this because the Bible says to them, says to me, says to you sometimes, tarry in Jerusalem. Just wait. They're going to have a 10-day period because from Passover, when Jesus was crucified, resurrected, to Pentecost, when Peter preaches, is a total of 50 days. That's what Pentecost means, 50th. And it's 50 days after the Passover, the Feast of, of First Fruits, you come to Pentecost. So for 40 days, Jesus is appearing, disappearing. Hi, guys. And then he disappears. And I think they were always on edge, like, man, we got to watch ourselves. We never know. Listen, there's a truth here. We never know when he's going to show up. So we better be on our guard. We better, you know, they're, they're looking over their shoulder. You know, they close the door, lock it. Jesus shows up inside the room. Hey, guys, ah, Pete, don't, don't be afraid. Peace be with you, you know. That, what a fun gift to have, you know. Wow. So he's just coming and going. So then finally he ascends, and for 10 days... He says, wait, just wait 10 days. That would drive me crazy. I am ADHD, impulsive man from the word go. I mean, I'm, but tarry, wait, be paid. We're, we are, before we've even finished the last thing, we're on to the next thing. We are just culturally go, 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 go. Even church, look, today is the Lord's day, but you've already got your whole afternoon planned out. And you can't wait till this preacher stops preaching so you can get out the door and get on with your day. You see what I'm saying? You got everything planned. You know, we're going to lunch and you know what's after lunch and you're doing this, you're doing that. You got a whole busy day. And so people will, will come in last minute or after the music started. And then once, once I give the conclusion, then everybody's standing. And while people are standing, I'm going to sneak out, get the kids before the rush comes. And get out the door in the park because I don't want to have to wait in traffic to pull out. And, and, and the Methodists go to lunch early and I'm going to miss it. And I've got to get to see that. T- so you've heard. And I'm telling you, sometimes waiting or tarrying is a good thing. I would encourage you, on Sunday, give yourself a margin so that you can tarry. So that you can wait. That you can spend some time with people. That what, a, what the Lord does while you're waiting is awesome. You meet people, you have an opportunity to pray with people. So build into your life margins so that you're not always running to the, to, on the red line so that you can come to church and say, you know what, today we're just going to tarry at church. We're going to hang out a little bit. We're going to stick around. I think that's a really, really good thing. He tells them to tarry uh, and, and tarry in Jerusalem because there was something they needed still. The Spirit of God in the New Testament sense. Now remember, The Holy Spirit is not absent in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is present in the Old Testament. The Spirit is hovering over creation. And the Spirit of God comes upon Saul, and he prophesies. And the Spirit of God comes upon Samson. There's this power that they receive from the Spirit of God coming upon them, but then would leave again. So in the Old Testament, a little more mysterious, a little more come and go-ish. The New Testament... It's the norm, being the, the presence of the power of the Holy Spirit is normative in the New Testament. And it's not something that comes and goes. The presence of the Holy Spirit is continual for the believer um, that, uh, that asks for it, that wants it, that desires it, that waits for it. Uh, so that's what we see kind of happening. The Old Testament sense, you know, there is that sense of the, of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a different sense in that when Jesus ascends, let, let me just read to you, Acts chapter 2, this is Peter's sermon 
verse 33 of Acts 2. Don't go there, just listen. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Remember, Jesus said, I'm going to go away, but I'm not going to leave you orphans. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit uh, to be with you, and I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. So that's the promise that's being spoken about, that Jesus had ascended to the Father, had received the fa- from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and he poured out that which you now see and hear, speaking of all that happened on the day of Pentecost. So Jesus, in ascending to the Father, receives this promise from him and then pours it out on us. So it's Jesus. Again, the baptism language is clear. When you pour something over someone, you're sort of baptizing them with that, whatever it is. You're immersing them in that. So Jesus, the the language of the Holy Spirit is being poured out onto us. So some would say, well, is it better? Maybe it would have been better if Jesus just stayed. That would be the best infallible proof. Like we go on the Jesus Alive tour and just take him around. Here's Jesus. He's alive. See, you can't argue with that. But he would still have been limited to his physical body. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather have Jesus with you or in you? You'd rather have Jesus in you. That's why Jesus said, it's better that I go away because right now I can only be with you. But I can also be in you and then this, and through the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God can also come upon you. We'll talk about that in a few verses. So he says to them, wait for the promise, tarry. Because uh, he said, you have heard from me, Jesus speaking, verse 5, for truly John, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, question How many people did Jesus baptize in water during his earthly ministry, the three or so years of his earthly ministry? Zero. Jesus didn't come to baptize people with water. His disciples baptized, absolutely. And John the the Baptist also baptized people in water for for repentance uh, and uh, looking forward to Christ. A preparation kind of thing. But, and he said of Jesus, there's coming one who will baptize. I baptize you with water, but he is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That's what John the Baptist said. And Jesus is saying, is, is, you remember that? That's going to happen now. Now's the time. But you've got to wait. Be, they didn't know how long. They didn't know it was going to be 10 days. They hadn't read the book of Acts yet. But you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Well, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they probably had no idea what Jesus meant, baptized with the Holy Spirit. What is that all about? All we want to know is, you're, you were dead, you're alive, let's get him. Now's the time to conquer Rome. You know, we, we get out from under the oppression of Rome and, and make Israel great again. And so that's what they want to know. Lord, is, okay, now is the time. They'd been one. Okay, now's the time. No, no, not yet. I'm going to die first. no. Now I'm alive. Now, now's the time? No. He says, verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Whew. That takes a load off of me, doesn't it? It takes a load off of you. It takes a load out of, off of all those so-called Bible scholars who want to tell you that Jesus is coming back in 1988, and they were wrong. Go ahead and pick a date so that you can be wrong. Because the minute you pick, he says he's coming at a day and an hour that we don't know. So the minute you think you know, and he says, well, I can't come that time again. Can't, can't come then. So stop predicting so we can come back already. 
Every time you make a prediction or someone, well, I think Jesus is coming back here. Ah, now we've got to wait longer. He's got to wait till you're not ready. He's got to wait till you say, I guess he's not coming back. Then he's coming back. And he says to us, you don't have to worry about that. You couldn't understand it if I explained it to you. Don't get caught up in figuring out when I'm coming back. In, in the meantime, while you're waiting for me to come back, whenever that might be, I have a job for you to do. I have a stewardship for you to fulfill. And he gave it to them already. The commandment was go in all the world. So they say, hey, are you going to restore the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So what do we do? If now is not the time for the kingdom, what do we do? He says, verse 8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So just stop right there. We're going to take this little thing in chunks. Just notice the word power. The question is, so they're told to wait in Jerusalem. Don't start your mission. Don't get out and start. Because they had been sent out before. Remember in, in the gospel, they'd been sent two by two. They had seen, they had cast out demons. They had healed the sick. And then they regathered to Jesus and they feed the 5,000. And So they had experienced miracles. They had done all of that before. And they'd been sent out on what we would call the short-term mission trip. But now this is the long-term mission trip. And, and he says to them, wait until you receive power. And the word power is the Greek word dunamis, where we get the words dynamic and dynamite. And it's a pretty important thing, uh, I think, for us to try to wrap our heads around, because he says to them, you need, don't go in your own strength. You could go now. You could go and talk to people about what you've seen. But you, you'll be much more effective if you have power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, for us, how many of you would say there's some parts and places in life where you feel really powerless? Could be at work, could be with the government. I mean, now, come on. I know you guys, and I don't, I'm not on Facebook because I, I don't like to be a Facebook stalker, and, and some of the stuff people put on Facebook, it's like, oh, I can't. what are you doing putting that on there? I don't want to read that. You're supposed to be a Christian. And a lot of government stuff, be careful, because as we get close to the election, things are going to get so polarized, and you're going to be tempted to spew out a bunch of nonsensical, unchristian junk on there. Remember, you are a Christian on Facebook, and you are a Christian in real life. You, but sometimes it's out of the heart that the mouth speaks, and so that's what you have to be careful of. But some of it's a feeling of powerlessness. And so we want to express our opinion. We want to tell people, here's what I would do. Here's what you should do. Here's what we could do if we were in power. Because you feel powerless. You feel powerless over the healthcare system. You feel powerless over big business. You feel powerless over the credit card uh, companies. You feel powerless over the government, you know, and these things, and we just feel like we're so powerless. But here Jesus says to you and to me, no, 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 no. You can have power. Power. We like power. We, that's the part of the Holy Spirit we like. I like to have power. And he's going to tell us what the power is for. The power is not for personal usage, for personal benefit in that way. They might have thought power Remember James and John coming to Jesus saying, when you come into your kingdom, we want to be on your right and on your left, the seats of power. We want to rule with you. So maybe they're thinking, maybe when Jesus says, we're going to receive power, it's like they're high-fiving. Yeah, we're getting power. We're going to be in charge. We're going to finally be able to overthrow Rome. We're going to finally be able to make some changes. We're going to be in control. Is that what the power was for? Say no. That's not... Now, they will make some changes. 
It's the power of the Holy Spirit. Some, some estimate John was probably only about 18 years old at this time. So you figure all the disciples were probably roughly in their 20s. So you have a group of 11 guys and then actually 120 altogether disciples of 20-somethings, a lot of them, not all, who turned the world upside down without a church building, without a budget, without a praise team, without uh, having read the book, How to Turn the World Upside Down in Seven Easy Steps, without having been to the conference, the Change the World conference. They didn't have any of that. They didn't have a Bible. They had their Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament. They had the Word of God, and they had the power of the Holy Spirit, and they were witnesses to Jesus Christ, and they rocked the world. And when they got persecuted, they, they were joyful that they were worthy to be persecuted for Jesus. What, what produces that in a person's life? How do you kill people that are already dead to themselves? You can't. I mean, when you're already dead, you can't touch, can't touch that person. Paul would say, I don't even count my life dear to myself. That's the key. That, and, and where does that come from? It comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. So just go on with me for one second here. The power, you should power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now for us, this is past tense. It's happened then. It's not something that we have to wait on. It's available to every believer today. So the question you're going to ask and that you often get asked is, so don't I get that when I'm saved? I mean, I've heard it said, the question is, well, a person gets all of the Holy Spirit when they're saved. I'm, the Holy Spirit is a person, not an energy or a mystical power, none of that. The Holy Spirit is a person. So you can't divide him up and, well, we'll give you a little bit of the Holy Spirit here, a little bit of the Holy Spirit there, and I need a little more of the Holy Spirit over here. No, no, it doesn't work that way. There is one Holy Spirit. And, but yet there are different ways that he works. Even the, the, the Gospel of John says that. Jesus told his disciples, for the Spirit is with you. When the Spirit is with a person, that Spirit is convicting them of sin. Maybe there's someone here this morning and the Spirit of God has been with you, meaning that you are becoming under conviction of your sin. That's the Spirit of God doing that. It's a lot of people in the world, they don't care about sin. They can go and they can sin, they can do things, and it never touches them. They don't care. But when the Spirit of God is with you, He's convicting you of sin. And all of a sudden you start to feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't do this. Or maybe that's not right. He's convicting of sin. Then when you get saved, the Spirit of God comes to dwell in you. That's what Jesus said in the Gospel of John chapter 14. Look it up when you go home. He is, he is with you and he will be in you. So those are two prepositions that describe the work of the Holy Spirit. And now we come to this third one, upon you. Now, the question, again, along with all of this, is as we decide, oh, is this something for everybody? Is it more of the Holy Spirit? It's not more of the Holy Spirit. Don't let people tell you that. It's a different working of the Holy Spirit in your life, a different working than just being saved. If it wasn't, they wouldn't have had to wait for anything. The question is, are the disciples saved? Are they saved? A couple of things for consideration. Luke 24 says that they were uh, constantly in the temple praising and blessing God. John chapter 20, 21, Jesus with his disciples breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. I, I would imagine they did. John 20, 28, Thomas 
after having this personal encounter with the Lord, says, calls Jesus my Lord and my God. I think Thomas was a believer. I think the guys are believers. So then why not just go? Why do they have to wait? There's this other dynamic of the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God is with you to convict of sin. The Spirit of God is in you for salvation. And, and so you're saved. You know, There's no second-class citizens, no foster children in the body of Christ. You're either a child or you're not. If you don't have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, then you're not a believer. But the, the Spirit of God comes upon a person for power. For power. Power to do what? That's the question. Before I get there, let me talk another moment about this word, upon. Uh, Luke says, clothed with power from on high. Same thing. Or endued. Uh, the word, the Greek word epi, it means to, to be upon or to be over. And again, Luke uses the word uh, clothed as kind of an example of that, like being, having a cloak put over you. But it's more than that. Uh, some of you know a little bit of my background. I was a bouncer in bars for years. I, uh, this is a long time ago. This is that, that Steve died, just so you know. I'm not still out moonlighting as a bouncer in bars, although sometimes solving church conflict can be as difficult. That's, that was cr- just a side note. What I did then was really cross-training for what I do now. <laughs> I mean, it really was like, okay, come on, let's get together here. Uh, and sometimes you toss people out. No, no, we don't toss people out. Um, upon. So as, a, as working in bars, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night, I'm around drunk people all the time. And, and I never really drank because I saw what drunk people did. I saw how stupid it was. I'm like, and they do things that they regret the next day. How did this bruise get here? Why is my hand broken? You know? And, you know, who is this girl next to me in bed? I mean, it happens. You guys know. I'm, I'm dealing with adults here. We're, we're not, we don't live under a rock. This happens all the time. And we're, so, so we know these things. And so this idea of coming, we say to a person, I remember this guy, he was a, he was a Richmond police officer. And he had been there. I knew him from some other places. And he was at the bar getting drunk. And he climbs out the window, second story window, and there's a canopy. It's a, it's a fabric canopy. He climbs out the window and he's standing on the canopy dancing. 15 feet in the air. And I'm like, get, 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 get back in here. Get in here. And he comes in and, and later on I'm, I'm like, what were you thinking? He says, I don't know what came over me. I know what came over you. Your drunkenness came over you. You lost all your faculties and your reasoning and another something else was powering your life. You were influenced. You were under the influence of something besides your own brain. And see, we use the word. We understand when someone says, I don't know what came over me. And that's why Paul makes this connection in Ephesians chapter 5. He says, be circumspect, look around. He says, don't be unwise. And don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation just leads you to destruction. Nothing good ever happens when people drink alcohol. No one ever is motivated to start an orphanage when they're drunk. I'm drunk. What should we do? You know, usually they're beating something up or jumping off of something or some other kind of nonsense. No one says, we're drunk. Let's go visit poor people or shut-ins. Let's go minister. No, no, no. It doesn't happen. 
don't be drunk with wine in which, is dis- in which is dissipation, but he says, keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. Alcohol is it Satan's cheap ripoff for the filling of the Holy Spirit, where there's another power that can be empowering your life. You are going to be under someone's influence. Uh, first service, uh, I don't think she'll mind me mentioning Lisa was in the back, and as I was talking about, you know, being filled with the Spirit and praying over these things, Lisa's back there going, amen, amen, amen. And uh, so, you know, she sort of opened the door for me to call attention to her, so now she's going to make it in the second service as well. But when, she, when we first met her, you know, she shared her testimony. She had, she had, you know, been involved with alcohol and smoking and some other things that I won't mention here without her explicit permission. But, uh, She'd come to the house and just felt like she was failing in her Christian life. Like, I'm saved. She had had given her life to Christ, but uh, just felt like she was always just having to ask for forgiveness and always blowing it and and still drinking and all these things in her life. And she just expressed, I just feel like I lack power. I just don't have power in my life. And so we said, have you ever asked God to baptize you with the Holy Spirit? Ever asked Jesus to to baptize you with the Holy Spirit? She's like, what's that? So we opened up the Bible, read this chapter, and she said, no, never, never been done. I said, well, would you mind if my wife and I just prayed for you to be baptized with the Holy Spirit? She said, sure, fine. So we prayed for her. And when we were done, I mean, she started flopping around on the ground like a fish. No, none of that happened. <laughs> she didn't turn purple. She didn't start running around speaking in another language. We just, see, we prayed in faith because God says, Jesus says, God is a good God. We read it. He's a good, good father. We sang that this morning. He loves to give good gifts to your children. Dads, moms, we love to give gifts to our kids. I mean, you just love it. And if we know as human parents how to do that, how much more our father in heaven loves to give good gifts to his children. And in Luke, it says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to them that ask? So it's not something that the power of the Holy Spirit in your life is not something you earn by being super spiritual, but it's something you desire. Desire these things. You can pursue love, but you can, and you have to desire spiritual gifts because you can't work them up yourself. I, I met a guy in the Baptist church. He was not a Baptist nor a Pentecostal. He called himself a Bapticostal. And he proceeded to tell me one night after Bible study, it's like, tell you what, you know, he said, you ever spoke in tongues? I said, no, never spoke in tongues. He said, I'll tell you what, come on over to my house. Me and my wife will have dinner, and then we'll teach you how to speak in tongues. And I've come to learn that the guy probably never read, a, never read his Bible because these are from the Lord. He, the Lord gives these things severally as he wills, and I'm off in a tangent about the gifts of the Spirit. But there's a lot of junk out there. The question is, what, you know, when you are drunk with wine, it makes you do things. There's another power in operating your life. It makes you do things that you never would have done otherwise. The Spirit of God does the same thing in a believer's life. When, when the power of the Spirit of God, these guys are going to be, they're going to tell them, don't you, we're gonna, they're going to get beaten, and they're going to say, don't you ever do that again. Don't you ever share the gospel again. Don't you ever talk about Jesus' resurrection again. And they're going to go right back out and keep doing it. That's just stupid. Unless you're filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Unless you've already given up your life. And so this baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and, and progressive fillings, not progressive necessarily in the sense of building on one another, but continual. Paul says, keep being filled with the Holy Spirit. I think it was Billy Graham that said, I have to keep being filled with the Holy Spirit 
because I leak. So what's it for? You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And this is the context. And you shall be witnesses to me. That's what the power of the Holy Spirit is for in the context right here in the book of Acts. It is so that people, God's people, will have the power to stand on the, the testimony of the ages and, share, and have the boldness to share with others what they know, what they've learned, and not just to say it, but to live it. The world wants to see. They, they know what we say we believe. They want to see, do we really live what we believe? When we really say we long for eternity, they want to see what happens when we get cancer. Do they really believe in eternity? Do they really believe in life after death? Or are they just saying that? Well, I don't know if I can do those. I don't know if I have the courage to. You pray. It's, the, it's not your courage. The Holy Spirit is called a comforter, right? That word, the root of the word comforter uh, is, is forte, or f- where we get fort, and it means strength. The comforter, the paraclete, is the one who comes alongside to give strength. When I was a kid, I played soccer. I was a goalkeeper, and I, I thank God for my dad. I was so nervous. I was a lousy goalkeeper. And I'd always get real nervous, especially my first game I ever played, seven goals went in on me. And I said, that's it, I'm done, never playing again. But my dad encouraged me, get, get back out there. And so I got better and better as I went on. And all through playing, uh, playing soccer and, and up and through high school, my dad would always come to the games and he would stand down by the goal. Couldn't come on the field. I think if he could have, he would have. But he would stand down by the goal. And anytime the opposing team would start bringing that ball down the field, I'd hear my dad saying, Come on, Steve, get ready. You can do it. Just encouragement to me. And I would get encouraged by hearing my dad say that. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit is to come into our lives, to come upon us, to give us courage in those times where we need courage to actually speak or say or do or be in this ungodly world. How can you change the world, turn the world upside down when you're already, when you're upside down? Actually, these guys turned the world right side up by the power of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't their human efforts. But that's what it's for, to be witnesses, to be martus to Jesus. That's who we bear witness to. Not our denomination, not Calvary Chapel. The, the important thing, what people need, they need Jesus. They don't need, church, they don't need more church. They don't need religion. Now, the Spirit of God in my life draws me to church. That's the work of the Spirit. We, don't, we spend so much of our time trying to convince people that aren't saved to look like saved people. Because when a person gets saved, when you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit is to do these things in your life. And so you don't have to beg me to come to church. I love to be at church. I love to be with sheep. I I love to read the Word of God. You don't have to convince me to read the Word of God. The Spirit of God in me draws me to His Word. The Spirit of God in me always pointing me to Christ. And so when I, when I meet people, like, I didn't need religion. I didn't need, I didn't need, I need church from the standpoint of I need to be part of the body of Christ. But you know what I'm saying when I say I didn't need, church doesn't save people. Jesus saves people. Church, it, it doesn't give people life. Jesus gives people life. And so what we're bearing witness to is not our, if you happen to come to Calvary Chapel, and you do, praise the Lord. But it's not about Calvary Chapel. We're not told to bear witness to Chuck Smith. Or John Wesley. 
or any other human being, we're told to bear witness, it's Jesus that's alive. It's Jesus that's alive in my life. All Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And that was our outline. So verse 9 says, When he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. He told them, I'm going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back again for you so that where I am, there you can be also. And he said, if it wasn't true, I would have told you that. So it's true. I've gone away. I'm going away, but I'm coming back. So there he goes. He's taken up by a cloud. The glory of God receives him out of their sight, and, and they're just watching him. Up he goes. You know, they're just like, wow, look at that. And, and while they were looking steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. They didn't even notice. Who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? That's a good question. I mean, did you not see just what happened? This same Jesus, notice that, this same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. His ascension is proof that of his return. The same way he went is the same way he's coming back. Well, Steve, when's he coming back? We don't know. So what do we do in the meantime? We fulfill the gospel by taking the good news to all people. And I hope that this church can be part of that. Start in your Jerusalem, which is where, not in Jerusalem, but in your Jerusalem. It's right there where you are. That's where they were, Jerusalem. So where do you start? You start there. Start in the neighborhood right over here. Start in the development that, that we adjoin to. Who's going to take the gospel to the folks that live in those houses? Have we as a church said, hey, you know what? We live right there. Has anybody gone door to door and said, hey, we just want to invite you to our church. Just want to tell you we love you and invite you to church. If we can't do it there, we have no right to go to Italy or anywhere else. So I think, you know, that's the thing that we shouldn't, but I think we should start here, Judea, Samaria, and, and all the earth. And so we have these things going on all at the same time. We're going to Nepal. We're going to Ukraine. We're going to West Virginia in a couple of weeks, the youth going there. But let's go right here, your neighborhood, our neighborhoods, our workplaces. And, and, but don't go without the power of the Holy Spirit. So as, as Jacob and the praise team come back up, um, I don't know where you find yourself uh, in, in all of this theologically, doctrinally. I don't care. The purpose of this would be that you can say with confidence, if I say to you, have you ever been baptized or been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit? I'll just leave that question like that. Can you say for sure, yes, I have? Or will you say, I'm not sure? Or will you say, no, I've never even asked? You're not alone. There's a chapter in the Bible we'll read about where they had no idea that it was even available to them. It meaning the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Spirit of God is not a, an energy or a force that we control. This is a person, a personality. So however you answer that question, here's what we did first service. I think it'd be a good, a good thing to do this service. Uh, as we stand and sing, not yet, but as we do, first of all, if you've never been saved, if you've been convicted of sin and you've never actually given your life to Christ for the remission of your sins, then I want to invite you to be saved today.